You are listening to the Forcecom Frontline, bringing you to our soldiers on the front lines of readiness. Hey everyone, welcome to the Forcecom Frontline. I'm Ashley, and I'm your host. But today, I'm not alone in my hosting duties. Joining me as a special co-host is our Forcecom Director of Public Affairs, Colonel Kathy Turner. Welcome, ma'am. Thanks, Ashley. <laughs> thanks for doing this with me. Well, thanks for asking me. Um, I'm I'm pretty excited. So you listen to podcasts quite yeah. frequently, but is this your first hosting? This is my first hosting gig. Well, glad I could be with me. <laughs> I think we'll have fun. I think I think you'll do great. Well, thanks. I'll get a critique afterwards. Okay. Okay. I'll give you an AAR. Thank you. <laughs> so you want to talk about who we are talking to today? I would love to. Today we are joined by Major General Retired Mary Eater, who served as the Deputy Chief of the United States Army Reserve and Deputy Chief of the United States Army Public Affairs prior to being appointed Commanding General of the United States Army Reserve Joint and Special Troops Support Command. She retired from the Army in 2013. Since retiring, she has published a handful of books, one being The Girls Who Stepped Out of Line, The Untold Stories of the Women Who Changed the Course of World War II, which is what we are talking about today. General Eater was just one of six females of the same rank when she retired, which I think it makes it even more special that she is sharing these women's stories. So welcome, General Eater, and thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, it's great to be with you. So one way or another. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, I'm going to start off script. So you went to Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania, um, which I don't don't hear very often, um, but I went to Indiana University of Pennsylvania, which is close by. No, Western Pennsylvania is, some of the schools are not that well known and some of them are merging now, but sadly, Edinburgh and IUP are not merging together. No, and honestly, whenever I tell somebody I went to IUP, they're like, wait, Indiana, Pennsylvania, they're very confused by the whole thing and nobody has ever heard of it anyway. So whenever I see somebody who might, might know about it, I have to mention it. Absolutely. And Edinburgh likes to think they're in Scotland, but they're not. Oh. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll go ahead and get started with the actual conversation now. Okay. So, ma'am, I'll kick it off. Um, In in this book, in your book, you talk about women who were spies, women who helped build one of the first topographic maps, women who helped break the coded Enigma messages the Nazi government used, and then also women of the Women Air Force Service Pilots, WASP. Uh, So I just wanted to start by asking, how did you learn about these women? Pretty much started by accident. So this was in 2017, and I'd been asked to speak at an event as a substitute. So I had two weeks to prepare, and I had just been reading about Stephanie Czech Radar, who was in the Women's Army Corps, a Polish speaker because her parents were immigrants, and she had just joined the OSS. So she had passed away in 2017. And at her funeral, they were talking about how she hadn't received any awards when she left the Army, other than an Army Commendation ribbon. So the point of that was to talk about how she was going to receive the award, and a Legion of Merit was presented at her funeral. But when I read about what she did, she was a counterintelligence agent in the OSS, the Office of Special Services, undercover in Warsaw, right at the end of the war, when it was extremely dangerous and she had no protection. She was without weapons. She had to pretend she was a Polish citizen and she did some incredible things and I had never heard of her. 
And I kept thinking, why don't I know about these people? Why haven't I heard some of these stories? And I kept finding them as the greatest generation passes from this earth in ever increasing numbers. I kept finding more. So I had a little folder that was getting larger by the time we get to 2019 when I started to realize how I could put them together in a book. All right. And so you mentioned to us in an earlier conversation that since writing this book, you've actually had the opportunity to meet some of the people who have known these women. You've met some of these women. Can you talk about those interactions and how that and, and their reactions to your book and actually being able to tell these stories? Certainly. I met two of the women, not in person, but I talked to them on the phone uh, several times. One was Betty Bemis Robarts, who was the not a code breaker. She actually built the machine, the code-breaking machine that was called, um, oh, now it escapes me. I can see it. It was has the Polish name. It was a, a, big, worry, massive, a big, massive machine, wasn't it, ma'am? The bomb. Yeah. We call it bomb. They called it Bombay. Mm-hmm. It was first started by the Polish people. Then it was improved upon by the British at Bletchley Park. And then it, they were built here in Dayton, Ohio, at a Navy facility that was a takeover of the National Cash Register plant where they would train their sales reps. So there were about 300 Navy waves who lived there. Now, Betty didn't want to join the Navy. She wanted to join the Army, of course, but (laughs) she wasn't old enough. So her dad had to sign for her to get into the Navy. She'd been a swimmer, a championship swimmer. She was sure she could get to the Olympics, but There weren't going to be any Olympics in 1944. And she said, I was tired of going to college. I was tired of swimming. I wanted to do something else. Amazing. And her dad signed for her, but he said, you're going to finish this, Betty, because you've never finished anything in your life. (laughs) She said, okay. So I have talked to her several times. Um, She passed away just a, a month or so ago. But one of the things she said to me after the book came out was, I don't know about why I'm in this book. I never did anything like any of these other women. I mean, I just am not in the same category with them. And I said, well, yes, you were. You were 20 years old and you signed a blank check to the United States of America, not knowing what was going to happen, where you were going to go or what you were going to do. Yes, ma'am. You know, so when I was reading this book, I just I couldn't stop putting it down the way you put the book together, each chapter dedicated to a a woman or a couple women. I just I really loved it because I kept wanting to read it. I wasn't thinking this was a history book, per se, because I just I just really enjoyed it. So when you were going through these stories and you've mentioned a couple of these women, um, but are there Do you have any favorites in particular, anyone that has stood out to you that you want to share with the audience? I mean, I know I have my favorites, but what are ones that you just really want to to share with us? I like to say I don't have any favorites, (laughs) but if I did, um, I was certainly fascinated by the British sisters, Ida and Louise Cook, because they were very different. Their outlook on life was different. Uh, They were civil servants with a attraction for opera. They became opera groupies. They saved their little bits of money so they could go to operas. And then one of their opera friends asked if they would escort someone back to England. Oh, sure, she can come with us, not a problem. And one of the things that Ida said later was, we were lucky enough to see this problem in terms we could understand. They never tried to be something other than what they were. 
two middle-aged spinster ladies who loved to go to the opera, and every time they went, they would come back with new friends. And their new friends would be escaping not the clutches of the Nazis. And to in order to come into England, they had to show they were financially self-sufficient. So I learned a little bit about immigration in doing this, mm-hmm. too. So one of the ways in which they did that was to sell their possessions and transform them into things that were portable, like jewels, furs. So these, these dowdy women would get on the train and go to Vienna, Berlin, Munich, come back by a different route wearing furs, diamonds, pearls, and with new friends. And they might have had some scary moments, but they had said they had belief in their British passports. And there was never a doubt that they were going to succeed at what they did. Did they save the whole world? No. Nor did they try to, nor did they think they could. But because of them, 26 families lived wow. that wouldn't have otherwise. Now, so many people say, well, what can I do? You know, they found a way to do something. They found a way to make a difference. And they succeeded at it. Yeah, those uh, those two sisters were was one of my favorite chapters, um, just because of what they did, thinking that they weren't doing this big thing. But twenty six families, when you look at all these women put together, th- that's amazing what everyone did. Just thinking, well, yes. I'm I'm not special, but they were so special to those families that they saved. They were, and one of the other ways they funded this was because Ida wrote romance novels, and she was a prolific writer. Between 1935 and 1986, she wrote 135 of these books. Wow. You can still get them on Amazon. And within that series, there's one series, of of course, it's Love Affairs at an Opera. Um, (laughs) So she got to relive some of their opera trips. But I bought one of these on eBay not long ago for, well, originally it cost 75 cents, but it was a little bit more when I got it. No, that's awesome. And she was the president of the British Romance Novelist Association, (laughs) where in Britain, a romance novel sells once every three minutes. Wow, that's very true. (laughs) So there's a a story that I remember reading, and I don't want to, I want to make sure I don't get the name wrong, but um, it was a woman and she was taking paperwork and she was on a train and she, she thought she was being followed. And so she's snuck the paperwork into another person's bag, I guess. I, I'm probably, I'm terrible with stories. <laughs> into her bag. So this that, is Stephanie um, Rader. Okay. She, she's coming back to Warsaw from Munich. I'm sorry, from Berlin. Yes. And she was given classified materials to take and she didn't want to. Yes. So the Russians yes. were watching the train. She could tell they were going to come to see what she had. And she pretended to trip and fall. And when this nice man helped her up, she said, oh, would you mind carrying these for me? Yes, that's it. And so he delivered them to the embassy for her. So she escaped. It's just incredible that she, like, she knew that she needed to still get these papers there, but she she had to do it in a different way. And on her feet was able to come up with a a way to still fulfill what she needed to do and protect herself. Mm Mm-hmm. So I had found her story and I found her talking a little bit about this, but I didn't know much about what she did in the early part of her tour with the OSS until I found, and this is after the book came out, I found an oral history that she did where she talked about her first assignment, which was to the London office of the OSS. And she spent time traveling around Europe along with another woman in a vehicle she had commandeered from somewhere. 
and she ends up in Austria, where General Mark Clark is now the commander of the peacetime commander there. And where did you get that car? And she said, I can't tell you. And he said, well, I'm going to take it. And she said, you'll never find it, sir. <laughs> and he didn't. Wow. So, you know, another another story, um, you open the book with Alice Marble. Um, and what an incredible story she has in the in the in general, the, the setbacks that she faced um, and she continued to persevere throughout her her life, really. Um, why did you want to open with her story? Because it was a great story to start with. I wanted to open with her story because when I started this, I had never heard of her. And as I discovered her story, there's no difference in her celebrity at that time as a tennis star and what we see in celebrities now. Yeah. She won, I think, in the space of nine years, something like 18 Grand Slams, which is huge. And this is before the time of the U.S. Open yeah. and the, the, the Grand Slam era even. So she was a tremendous athlete, and she had already suffered through TB and right. through some amazing setbacks to recover from at the time. So what she had done, I found just to be incredible. And she still wanted to serve in World War II, but she couldn't because of the TB. Right. She couldn't pass the physical. So she found other ways to serve, as many of them did. And if, the more you learn about the times, the more you understand the connections. And for so many of these people, I found how they were connected not only to each other, but to other major events, or they knew of each other. They'd been in the same place, but at different times. And I was fascinated with all of the connections. But Alice was quite something in herself. She had, there was a tennis racket with her name on it. She sponsored a whole line of clothing. Um, the first tour she did, she modeled clothes everywhere they went, not just tennis outfits, but other clothes. I couldn't use those photos because they're um, proprietary and I couldn't track down the owners. Some of these photos were very difficult to find. In fact, sure. Ida and Louise Cook gave all of their pictures to the Victoria and Albert Museum in London to the theater branch. And it took me weeks to find those. I had looked at 20 pages of vases before I found <laughs> where their pictures were kept. Wow. I'll tell you what, though, when you when you start this book and, and you start with that story, the way you tell it, it's not like you're reading a history book at all. Like you said right. before, you think you're reading some like crime novel. Um, what's going to happen in this? Some mystery. I know. I like that. <laughs> I do, too. <Yeah. laughs> I do, too. One of the other reasons we didn't, didn't know some of these stories for so long is all of the files that were classified. So the OSS files were not declassified until 2008. And when they were, the OSS Society, which is kind of like an alumni group, were there, and that's how they found Stephanie Check Raider. Because she had never claimed veterans preference. She had never gone to any veteran meetings. She didn't march in parades or wear her cap or any of that. So, And many of them didn't, and many of them couldn't because of the security requirements for what they had done. Sure. Some I found were kind of bitter about some of that, but others of that generation, oh no, not me, I didn't do that much. Oh, I don't deserve anything. Right. So ma'am, with that, when the declassification, a lot of what they did was coming to light and you were talking maybe to like family, family members or even neighbors that kind of found out, wait a minute, you did what? <laughs> Grandma was in what? I mean, so what has been some of those reactions um, that you've had when you've been talking to family members or just acquaintances of these women? One of the women was a nurse. This is Kate Nolan. She had started out by graduating from nursing school in 1944 and saying, 
I want to be a flight nurse because that sounds cool. Well, the program was closed. So she ended up being assigned to a combat hospital heavy casualty. So Kate is about my height, five foot three. And on two weeks after D-Day, her hospital landed on Omaha Beach. And she nearly drowned going ashore because she wasn't tall enough to get over the waves. And the taller nurses dragged her onto the beach. <laughs> and then she went through the rest of the war earning five battle stars for every event, every battle they went through. Now, they're supposed to be behind the front lines, right? Well, sometimes they weren't that far back. Now, her husband, Jim was in the Army Air Corps and he was in Japan. So whenever I needed to have a question answered, she passed away in 2019. I would talk to her daughter, uh, Marianne, or I would talk to her son, Steve. Steve served in Afghanistan. Three of his brothers served in Vietnam. They had wow. seven children all together. Wow. But whenever I asked a question, they would have to have a family conference <clears throat> and, and, and see who had the answer. So how did your parents get back together after the end of the war? How did they meet up? We will have to call you back. We have to talk. <laughs> okay. And so it was weeks before I heard back from them. And by now I'm getting worried. Oh, why am I not hearing from this? Is a hard question or is there something wrong here? Yeah. And finally, Marianne called me back and said, we have talked and none of us know. <laughs> I said, okay. Which meant, now they're sad they don't know and haven't asked. So oh. it's all the questions we should ask, you know. Yeah. yeah. No, but I did find, too, that for many of them, there is a family legacy of service. And you see that in the next generations. Right. In fact, Kate's granddaughter served in Afghanistan. Theirs was just a really touching story. I, just, I, I also enjoyed reading about her time, especially the Christmas story that you had in, in her chapter. So I loved hearing about that. So, so ma'am, we've talked a lot about these incredible women, but we want to talk a little bit about you and your career. Um, you've had a very successful military career. So, um, you know, we were wondering if you could share how you came to join the Army, and is it something you've always thought you would do? It's something I never thought about. It wasn't until I was a senior at Edinburgh and not Indiana that I talked to one of my friends who was in what was then called the College Junior Program. Um, so it wasn't ROTC. Edinburgh didn't have ROTC then, which is funny because I go to the ROTC department now every time I'm there. <laughs> but she was going to go into the Army, and I thought, that sounds interesting. And then after graduation, I finished my master's while she is a lieutenant and telling me how much fun it is. And not fun in the ha-ha sense, mm -hmm. but challenging, exciting, learning new things, you know, teaching yourself leadership, what she's learning. She was in the ordinance course, so I didn't think that was something that interested me, but I thought this is a great way to start in life, you know, to learn all of the, the self-discipline, the teamwork, all of the things that we talk about that are the hallmarks of an army career, regardless of what your rank is or where you are. And so I thought I could do that. I could do that for a couple of years, right? <laughs> So that was the goal to do it for three years. It didn't quite work out that way. <laughs> no, but a few more. Yeah, it worked out pretty well for you though in the end. I wonder too, what, is that, what did that feel like for you to, when you retired? You were just one of six female major generals in the army. What an accomplishment. I, I used to call it like walking on a high wire. You don't look <laughs> down, you don't think about it. So when I'm in the Pentagon, the only other 
female general on the Army staff at that time was then Lieutenant General Ann Dunwoody. Okay. So one day, some days you change your uniform every few hours depending on the events. Right. And I had to go to a dress event and I didn't have the shoulder boards. And my XO said, well, I'll go borrow some. And I went, from who? Yeah. <laughs> and I think it, it kind of hit me at that point that I had no one to talk to, no one to commiserate with. I really think to to be a companion and understanding how things worked and how to how to navigate some of the systems you have to in order to be successful. So I wonder what so, you're... Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I wonder what your advice would be to other females in the Army who uh, who also look to the side and they wonder who their mentor, who their companion could be, and they don't necessarily see somebody. What, what would you say to them? I think one of the differences between when I started in the Army and now is one of sheer volume. Yeah. It's right. more numbers. Right. Yeah. It is understanding that half the talent in the, this country, 51%, women versus men, not versus men, but with. Sure. Let's let all of the talent in regardless of who has it or where it's from. And with that volume, I think you have more of a, a sense of a cohort or a cadre or others to talk to or compare things with. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's it's gotten better over time. It also depends on on the unit and where where you're located. Sometimes there's several... Right similar ranks in and in, in teammates that you can look to your left and your right and then other times it's just like well, how am i am i the only one or <laughs> you know so it definitely has gotten has gotten better so you retired in 2013 so that's 36 years of service but you are still contributing um and why is why is that important to you why do you want to continue to give back i think that's true of everyone who has spent their adult life in public service in some way or another, and you say, I have this whole wealth of knowledge, let me, let me use it to be helpful. Sure. Um, although sure. George Marshall said, I don't want any 60 year old generals because they don't take risks. <laughs> but, and that was understandable at that time. And certainly, reading enough history of World War Two, you can see why that was significant for him. But I, I also know that people would say to me, don't you want to stay? And the answer is yes. But if I don't step aside, somebody else can't move up, I have to go. It doesn't mean I don't have a voice and I don't have things to say because I've always had things to say, <laughs> as many people might tell you. Um, and I do want to be someone who can continue to mentor, to help, to talk about things I know and share them. And I hope I'm doing that. Well, I mean, we think you are, ma'am, and we're, we are so happy that you continue to serve and contribute um, because you do have a lot to say. And I think people really enjoy listening to you and just hearing your advice and just sharing your experiences with folks. Um, so we, I did want to ask a question, you know, before we let you go and just give you an opportunity to maybe give us some insight into what's next for you or things that you're working on that you can share or, um, you know, just anything you want to cover that we haven't talked about. When I talk about this book, I don't talk about it as something I wrote. I want to talk about it as look at what these people did. Look at what they did at a time when they didn't have a cadre, a cohort, help, mentors, support. You know, there's always been people throughout history who are trailblazers. They'll do it no matter what, whether they get that help or support. They do it because they believe in it or they're good at it or they really, truly desire in their heart that they need to make this difference and make this change and take this risk, whether they know how big of a risk it is or not or how it will come out. And I want to keep talking about them. I do have other projects 
You know, I talk a lot about communications, misinformation, disinformation, messaging, all of those public affairs things that <laughs> I do dearly love. But I also am working on a next book or two. So the next book that is in this series with this publisher will be about women in law enforcement and police in New York City at the turn of the century, which is another another one of these feelings as I had in writing this book of, I didn't know that. Why didn't I know that? I should know that. And it's finding incredible things that have just been buried, forgotten, or deliberately omitted from history books. So by bringing them to light, I think that we complete the story. We can't know the totality of the effects of a certain time period on history until we have all of the stories. So World War II is not just about the politics, the generals, the battles. It's about everyone who lived at that time because everyone was affected. And it's the same for what we're going through now. Everyone is affected by what the world is experiencing at this moment. Everyone in this country was affected by the pandemic and in the world. And we're still going through that in this period of what the term now I think is liminality, the time of the open door in between. What is past is gone, but what is coming is not yet here. And we are in this in-between stage, the stage of opportunity and the stage of worry. But here we are. Oh, ma'am, that was incredible. Um, I know I'm looking forward to, to seeing those uh, future stories that you're going to write about. Um, but it's just when you talk about people who are trailblazers, these women in particular, um, and the importance of knowing their stories, what they had to contribute to make sure they aren't forgotten about, because our world wouldn't be what it is today without them taking the risks that they did um, to make the world a better place, to make their own sacrifices so people could could live and to live in a free world. So just uh, just thank you for what you're doing and you know wanting to tell these stories. Oh, thank you, and I'm so happy to get to talk to you about them today. I could probably do this for another couple of hours, but <laughs> Zoom is telling me, oh, no, you only have so much time before we shut you off. So oh, no. there's that. I, I just quick, Colonel Turner was saying that um, before we let you go, can you talk about how you got the title of this book? Sure. So in 2019, I had just been thinking about putting this together as a book, and I'm watching the Emmy Awards. Alex Borstein is receiving the Emmy for Best Supporting Actress for the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And when she gets up, she says, in World War II, my grandmother was about to be shot into a pit. She turned to the guard and said, what happens if I step out of line? And he said, well, I don't have the heart to shoot you, but somebody will. She stepped out of line. And for that, I am here today. And for that, my children are here today. So step out of line, ladies, step out of line. Absolutely. That's, I just love that story. Yeah, I do too. I wanted to make sure that yeah. we we talked about that because um, I, I have heard it before, but y you say it a lot better than I ever could. <laughs> you can you can see her do that online too. We'll have to look YouTube. for that. Look it up. Yeah. Well, we truly appreciate you taking the time to talk with us um, and talk about this, these stories and these women. Um, we think it's it's really important. Um, and again, thank you for, thank you for taking your time to do this today. Is there anything else you want to? I just want to say thank you so much, ma'am. Oh, thank you. I'm sure you'll cut out all the stumble parts. <laughs> you cut out all the stumbling parts, right? And edit it. So of it's course. All of course. Of course. That's it for this episode. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can also find full video episodes of our podcasts on YouTube. You can just search for The Force Comm Frontline. And we'll see you next time.
on the front line.